that God appoints the very time when death will happen for each person. Listen to what David says in Psalm 139.16. Speaking to God, he says, In your book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Our days are numbered by God. You see, death may seem like an accident to us, but it's not an accident to God. No one lives a day less or a day longer than God ordains. And I think that should bring us great comfort when we lose a loved one, even a child. Because we know that God has His reasons, that God has His purposes. Even though we don't know what they are, we can trust Him. We can be like Job when he lost ten of his children in a sudden windstorm. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I think this truth should give us great peace when we think about our own death. See, it's appointed for us to die. The time is appointed. Now, that doesn't give you license to take reckless chances. It doesn't give you license to do foolish things. We are to be sensible with regard to diet and exercise and proper medical care. But the fact is that our lives are in God's hands. We will die at His appointed time. When Jonathan Edwards, the godly preacher, was 54 years old, he received a vaccination for smallpox. That treatment was at its earliest practice, and he no doubt thought that it was a wise precaution, that it would, would extend his life. But instead, the doctor who was applying the vaccine to him gave him too much, and he contracted that deadly disease. On his deathbed, he spoke to his younger daughter who was there with him, and according to his biography, this is what he said. Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And then he went on to direct his children to seek a father who will never fail you. And then when those at his bedside believed he was unconscious and began to express their grief at what his absence would mean, he surprised them by uttering one final sentence. Trust in God and you need not fear. When the news reached Edward's wife, Sarah, she was suffering so much from rheumatism that she could scarcely hold a pen. But she wrote to her daughter Esther, who had lost her husband Aaron Burr just months before. And this is what she wrote. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, Jonathan, so long. But my God lives, and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. 
We are all given to God, and there I am, and love to be. That was a family that understood that God, that death comes at God's appointed time. Death is a certainty. And the question is, do you anticipate it with joy or do you run from it in fear? Are you looking for the undertaker or the upper taker? You know, I read about an African-American pastor who was invited to speak at a high school graduation. And rather than give the usual live up to your potential speech, he spoke in plain words to them about preparing for death. He said, quote, young people, you're going to die. You may not think you're going to die, but you're going to die. One of these days, they're going to take you out to the cemetery, drop you in a hole, throw some dirt on your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad. When you were born, you alone were crying and everybody else was happy. The important question is, when you die, are you alone going to be happy while everybody else is crying? And the answer depends on what you do with Jesus. So you see, the first thing is the certainty of death. Second thing is the reality of judgment. Notice verse 27 again. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Death is certain, but it is not the end. The Bible teaches us that there is something after death, and that something is judgment. Now this verse clearly refutes reincarnation. You see, you're not going to come back as a jackrabbit. You only die once. But this verse also refutes the idea that people get a second chance to receive Christ after they die. Does your translation read, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes a second chance? No. There is no second chance. Death is followed by judgment. You say, well, who will be at this judgment? Well, we all say, well, you know, uh, the Neros will be there and the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Ted Bundys, all those people who live evil lives. But you know, Jesus indicated to us that there will also be a whole lot of other people there. People you may not expect. In fact, people who don't expect to be there. Jesus told us that many Good church members who have never trusted Jesus Christ are going to be there and they're going to be shocked. Jesus described it in Matthew 7, 21 this way. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, that judgment could be the next thing on God's agenda for you if you die today. Because death is final and then judgment will be a reality. And that's why the Bible so urgently warns us in passages like 2 Corinthians 6, 2, where it says, Now is the day of salvation. You see, delay in trusting 
Christ may be eternally fatal. There is only one group of people who won't experience judgment, and those are believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus says of that person in John 5.24, He has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. A believer in Jesus Christ has already passed out of death into life, and there is no judgment for that person. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that as believers, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will give an account for the deeds that we have done in the body. But see, in that case, Christ will be dealing with our deeds. He will not be dealing with our destiny. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that our deeds will be tested with fire. And it says those faithless evil deeds will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But those deeds that are God-empowered, those deeds that are gold, silver, and precious stones will last through the fire and they will be the basis for our reward. But you know what the worst-case scenario is for a believer? It's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15. It says, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, the only thing that gets consumed by the fire that judges the lives of believers is the deeds and ultimately the rewards. But even if a person has all his deeds burned up and suffers loss, he himself will be saved. So we see the certainty of death. We see the reality of judgment. Thirdly, we see the possibility of salvation. Notice verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Now stop right there, because this is really a summary statement of what the writer says in verses 23 to 26. I had a professor in Bible college who often repeated his teaching method to us. He would say, class, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And then we're going to review. You see, he understood that repetition is a key part of learning. And the writer of Hebrews obviously understands that as well because he repeats some things in this passage that he's already said before. And so I want you to look at it briefly. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Now what are the copies of the things in the heavens? Well, he told us back in chapter 8 and verse 5 that that's a reference to the earthly tabernacle. And here he's saying that the earthly tabernacle was cleansed with these. And that's a reference back to chapter 9 and verse 21 where we're told that Moses sprinkled the tabernacle with animal blood to cleanse it. Now look again at verse 23. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You see, animal blood isn't enough to cleanse the heavenly things. That requires the blood of Christ. You say, well, wait a minute, Dan. 
why do the heavenly things need to be cleansed? Well, that's a good question. Some people say that this is just a dedicatory consecration, just sort of a ceremonial, symbolic thing that takes place. Others say that the heavens need to be cleansed because Satan and his fallen angels have been there and have defiled that place. And when Jesus on the cross died, he disarmed them and triumphed over them and cleansed heaven at that time. Those are pretty good answers. But I think there's a better answer. And I think that answer shows up in verse 24. Because notice what he says. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now don't miss those last two words. Christ appears in the presence of God for us. You see, Christ didn't have to cleanse heaven for him to go there because he had been there for all eternity. He had to cleanse heaven to go there because we were going there with him. He was going there for us. And the Bible tells us when we become believers, we are in Christ. That's the symbolism of baptism. Baptism is identification with Jesus Christ. And because we are in Christ, when he is in heaven, we are in heaven. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says that we are now seated with him in the heavenly places. In God's eyes, if you are a believer, you are already seated in heaven with Jesus Christ. But you know, the Bible even says more than that. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.16, speaking of the church, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple. We are the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place. In fact, that's a Greek word that is used to speak of the holy of holy places. We as believers are the holy of holy place where God now dwells. We as believers are the true tabernacle. So you see, it's really us who are being cleansed by the blood of Christ so that God may make his dwelling place, his holy of holy places inside of each of us. And then he goes on to show how Christ's sacrifice is better in verses 25 and 26. And these are things he's already said before. He's reviewing verse 25. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, if you look carefully at those two verses, he makes two points of contrast between the old sacrifices and the better sacrifice of Christ. First contrast, Jesus sacrificed himself. See, the high priest in the Old Testament brought, according to the end of verse 25, blood not his own. Animal blood. In contrast, Jesus, at the end of verse 26, came by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus sacrificed himself. Second contrast, Jesus' sacrifice was done once. He tells us that the high priest came on the Day of Atonement year after year. You see, if Jesus had done that, then he would have had to come and suffer over and over again since Adam first sinned. 
But instead, verse 26 says, but now at the consummation. It's an interesting phrase. It literally means the consummation of the ages. And what is the consummation of the ages? What is the apex of the ages? Well, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. And why is it the apex of the ages? Well, because we read in verse 26, He put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. I love that phrase. He put away sin. It's a Greek word that mean he, means He canceled it. He annulled it forever. At that one occasion on the cross, He blotted out all the sins all the way back to Adam and all the way until the end of time. And that's why His sacrifice only had to happen once. And that's the point that he's reviewing when we come to verse 28. He says in verse 27 again, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time not to bear sin to those who eagerly await him for salvation. You see, Jesus had to come only once to put away sin, but that's not the only time he's coming. He's coming again. You know, I like these verses because it says, men die once and then comes the judgment. So Jesus died once and you expect him to say, and Jesus is come, coming back and he's going to judge you. But he doesn't say that. He says, Jesus, is, Jesus died once and he's coming back for what? For salvation. Now, it's interesting to me that there are three appearances of Jesus in this short passage. In verse 26, we're told... Once at the consummation, he has been manifested. That's talking about the cross. Then verse 24 speaks of his appearing in the presence of God. And then verse 28 says he shall appear a second time. And as I say, the second time he is coming for salvation. Now you need to understand that when the Bible talks about salvation, he talks about salvation in three tenses. We are saved in the past at the moment we trusted in Christ from the penalty of sin. We are being saved at the present time from the power of sin as God works His holiness into our daily lives. And we are going to be saved in the future from the very presence of sin when Jesus comes back. And that's why 1 John 3, 2 says, when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And it's this last tense, this last aspect of salvation that He's talking about in verse 28. And who gets this salvation? Those who eagerly await Him. Now this is a picture that really comes from the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement. Because on that day, the people would stand outside the tabernacle and the only person who would go in the tabernacle was the high priest. He would go in there with the blood of the goat and he would go into the holy of holy places and he would disappear out of their sight. They would wait outside and the minutes would seem like hours as they waited to see if he was going to reappear outside. Because you see, when he reappeared, they rejoiced because that meant God had accepted the sacrifice and their sins were paid for for the previous year. That's the analogy he's using here. And what he's trying to tell us is if the people were so eager to see the former high priest 
who reappear from the earthly holy of holies, how much more should Christians look eagerly for their great high priest to reappear from the heavenly holy of holies? So the question is for you and me, are we eagerly awaiting him? You know, after Christ Christmas of 1952, Hank Williams was trying to get from Montgomery, Alabama to Canton, Ohio to be in a show. There was an unusual snowstorm in the southeast, and so he couldn't go by plane, and so he hired a 19-year-old college student named Charles Carr to drive him in his Cadillac. Hank got a shot of morphine for his back pain, and then he settled into the back seat with his favorite companion, a bottle of whiskey. He was soon asleep. Police officers stopped the car for speeding in Tennessee and commented that that guy in the back seat doesn't look very good. About five hours later, his overcoat slipped off of him, and so Charles Carr reached back to move it back onto his lap and felt that his hands were cold and stiff. And so he drove him to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. Ironically, he was pronounced dead on January 1st, 1953. The same day, his song, I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive, became the number one country song. I find that especially sad because there's no question that he knew enough of the Bible to be a Christian. In fact, he wrote another song that we're all familiar with. I saw the light. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, praise the Lord, I saw the light. You say, well, did, did Hank get out of this world alive? Well, I'm not qualified to say. But I can tell you this, that's not the question you ought to be asking. The question you ought to be asking is, will you get out of this world alive? You see, Jesus said in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. That's an amazing statement. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, even when you die, you will still be alive. You know, I've, I've attended hundreds of funerals over the years, but there is one funeral I will not attend, and that's mine. I'm not going to be there. I hope you'll be there. Please come. But I'm not going to be there because the moment I close my eyes in death, the real me, the inner me, is going to go into the presence of the Lord Jesus. And that's why the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In fact, Paul looked ahead to death and he said in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When I die, don't worry about me. 
because it's going to be gain. I was just sitting down thinking, what is it that I'll gain? I didn't make a long list, but the first thing that came to my mind was that I will gain the literal presence of Jesus. I now see him through a smudged mirror. I now see him through the eye of faith. But then I will see him face to face. What a gain. When I die, I will gain freedom from pain, freedom from worry, freedom from stress, freedom from fear, freedom from sin and all its consequences in my life. That's gain. Let me close by asking you a question. How would you complete this sentence? For to me, to live is blank. Now don't give me the answer you think I want to hear. Or don't give me the answer you know is right. What are you really living for? How would you honestly fill in that blank? You know, if you say, for me to live is pleasure, then you have to say to die is loss because death will bring the end of all your earthly pleasures. If you say, for me to live is money, then you have to say, to die is loss because you can't take it with you. I've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. If you say, for me to live is fame, then you have to say, to die is loss because you won't hear any applause after you die. And even if you fill in the blank with something as good as no and noble as for me to live is family, then you must say to die is lost because if you live only for your family and your family is not based in the person of Jesus Christ, then family ties will end at death. But if you can say, for to me to live is Christ, then you can say, to die is gain. And then you can write your own country song. And you can entitle it, I'm getting out of this world alive. Or better yet, I've already gotten out of this world alive. Because what did Jesus say in John 5, 24? Believers have passed out of death into life. It's already happened. It's already a done deal for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm going to challenge you to think about your answer to that question as we close our service today. I'm going to have the praise team come back. We're going to sing that.